All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. The few that have made it all the way to the end after a year of church history. Let's pray, and then I'll tell you what we are talking about this morning. Almighty God, we thank you for this series, the fact that you love your church. I pray that we may continue to learn from the uh, good things of the past, but also the mistakes of the past that we might not repeat them. We ask that you'd be with us as we uh, study the church today, where we are and where we are going. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, this is my last lesson at Parkway and my last Sunday here. And so we're going to go out with a bang, though, talking about uh, the church today, finishing up church history. I was going to originally stay through the end of the year, but the elders were gracious and uh, allowing me to start my new job uh, this coming week. And, uh, and so uh, this, will be, uh, this will be my last lesson here. A few comments before we get on, into the lesson on the church today. First of all, I use in this lesson a bunch of statistics. Now, there's a great quote by Mark Twain on statistics. He says that there are lies, blank lies, blank being an expletive, and statistics, okay? Statistics can be misused. They can be warped. It can be really, really bad. What I've I've tried to do is in a few places throughout the lesson, I've mentioned where I've gotten that statistic. That way, in case you want to know where that information comes from. I've not done that at every single point because I didn't want you to have 19 pages of footnotes. Okay, So you can probably find your own statistics. Don't email me. Your email will bounce. It won't matter, right? So these are the statistics that we have here for today. Additionally... This lesson is going to sound a little bit doom and gloom when we look at kind of the direction of the church. Two things to keep in mind as we go through this lesson. First of all, your ultimate hope should be in Christ, not how well the church is doing or not doing. You with me? There's a a way where you, like the Apostle Paul, can say that you're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Also, this just means that I, I personally don't think the church is in a great place or is going in a great direction, but it could bounce back. So I'm not trying to push some sort of eschatological view. You can take this lesson and you can be amillennial or pre-mill, or you can take this lesson and you can be post-mill, because who knows, the church 100 years from now might be doing great. Church history, as we've seen, the church is kind of like the stock market. Some years it's killing it, and some years it's not doing so great. And then like the late Middle Ages is like the Great Depression. And then the Reformation is like, you know, when everything is going uh, really well. And so the same thing is true with the church. So keep that in mind as we jump into the lesson. Y'all ready? Okay, let's talk about the church today. After everything we've learned over the last year, starting out in the New Testament, moving through the early church, moving to the Middle Ages, the Reformation, the modern church, we end it today with the church today. So, this is the last lesson in our series, and it lets us see where the church is going and how we're doing. Okay, a few things to mention. There's the first one. The predominant location of Christianity has shifted. Whereas Christianity used to be most prevalent in Europe and North America, it is growing rapidly in Africa, South America, and in Asia. So look at these numbers here. This comes from a church historian named Justo Gonzalez, who's really, really sharp. In 1900, look at the percentage of Christians. And again, this doesn't mean that everyone here who claims to be a Christian is really born again and orthodox and a Christian. It just means that when they're asked about their religion, they would not check Muslim or Jew or something like that. They would check Christian. In 1900, 94.5% of Europe was Christian. 96.6% of North America was Christian. We always got to beat those those pagan Europeans. 9.2% of Africa was Christian, a very low number, and then 2.3% of Asia was Christian. Now, by 2000, okay, by 2000, within just 100 years, look at the difference. 76.8% of Europe was Christian. Notice that's going down. 84.2% of North America was Christian. Notice that it's going down, but look at Africa from 9.2% to 45.9% of Africa was Christian by the year 2000. And then Asia jumped from 2.3 to 8.5. Now, I realize that 8.5% of Asia being Christian is not a high number. But, again, and I'm not a math wizard, 8 is higher than 2. And so it's better, right? We see this upward trend and this upward Growth. Now, there's a little map that I've included of Africa of what the predominant religions are in Africa. The point I'm trying to make is there, there are some people that will act as though Christianity is European or it is American or it is even white or something like that. It's not. It shifts different locations depending on where it is in church history. So it starts in the Middle East, shifts to Europe. Now it's shifting to places like Africa, South America, especially with uh, the, uh, the growth of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. But there is a picture of Africa. Most of North Africa is fervently Muslim. Most of South Africa, though, has had some type of Christian missionary influence. Again, this doesn't mean all these people are Christians. It just means that there's a strong Christian influence there. And then scattered throughout, you have some folk religions, some indigenous religions, 
etc. Okay? Now, how many Christians are there in the world? Maybe you've wondered this. How many people would identify as being Christians? There are about 2.3 billion people who identify as being Christian. Again, this doesn't mean that they're actually Christians. It just means they think that they're Christians. They might not practice it. They might not believe correct things. 2.3 billion people identify as being Christian. The second largest religion in the United States and Europe, so that's worldwide. Let's zoom in on the United States and Europe. The second largest religion in the U.S. and Europe is atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. This group is called by sociologists nuns, not like those ladies that are like female monks. No, no, N-O-N-E-S, meaning when they have to check what their religion is, they check none, and that is the second largest grouping in the U.S. and in Europe. I remember hearing pastors years ago say nobody's really an atheist anymore people are, have a tendency to be somewhat spiritual but atheism's basically dead that was an old thing that is not true at all atheism agnosticism sometimes what's called scientism not to be confused with the tom cruise religion scientism is uh, is a hugely growing uh, worldview especially in the US and in Europe Worldwide, there are about 1.8 billion Muslims and 1.2 billion nuns, those that do not consider themselves religiously affiliated. So notice that's more than Christians. Now, here's kind of the bad news. In case you think the world is becoming more Christian, worldwide, not just in America, the percentage of Christians is steadily going down and has been for over a decade, and the number of Muslims and agnostics is going up. So there's a tendency for us to think, The world, Zach, is becoming more Christian because there are more people today who identify as being Christian than there were 2,000 years ago. Yes and amen, there are certainly more Christians in 2021 than there were in the year 34 AD or something like that. Totally agree. The problem is, though, you have to account for population growth. If a million more people become Christians, but a billion more people are born, that is a huge, huge, huge net loss. Okay? That is a huge net loss. Listen to this. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world by far. Over the next 50 years, the total human population is expected to increase by 32%, but the Muslim population will increase by 70%. By 2050, within the next 30 years, Islam is expected to be the largest religion in the world, followed by nuns. Christianity will drop to number three, with half of of those being Catholic. Okay? Sounds discouraging. Again, our hope, though, is not in numbers... It's not in how 2021st you know, century Christianity is doing. Our hope is ultimately in Christ. But what the statistics seem to show is the conversion rate, people becoming Christians, does not keep up with the birth rate, and it does not keep up with the rate of the growing influence of Islam. So in the next, by, by 2050, the world's largest religion will no longer be Christianity. It will be Muslim, followed by atheist agnostic. Christianity will be number three. And you think number three is not bad. Half of those are Roman Catholic. Okay? Which is still Christian. You can be a believer and be a Roman Catholic, yes and amen, but many Roman Catholics are not saved. Many Roman Catholics are trusting in them, themselves, their church, their works, whatever, instead of just trusting in Christ. And so uh, that is the state of uh, Christianity, kind of the direction that we are heading. Again, we could have a resurgence 200 years from now. So don't be pessimistic or optimistic. I'm just trying to give you some numbers. You can find your own numbers online, whatever you want. Just believe what you want. If you look at this map here, you see the population of uh, Muslims by kind of nation, kind of a worldview of where Islam is growing. I heard a pastor recently say that Islam is really just a regional religion. That is not true at all. It's blowing up all over the place, not just in the Middle East and Africa. In Southeast Asia, there's a strong Muslim influence. Look at places like Russia. Look at places like uh, India. Look even in the U.S. and this kind of stuff. So it is going to continue to grow. Now, what are the largest Christian denominations? So we just kind of looked worldwide over what's going on with Christianity. Let's zoom in to Christianity specifically and see what are some of the largest denominations. What is the largest and what has always been the largest Christian denomination? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you grew up in the South, it feels like Southern Baptist. Uh, Roman Catholic, okay? Half of everyone who identifies as a Christian on earth identifies as Roman Catholic. That is by far the biggest denomination. Now, so that's Roman Catholicism. What about Protestantism? What are the largest Protestant denominations worldwide? Number one is, if you think back to our lesson on Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, that is going to be the largest denomination. Now, just to give some nuance here, that's a little bit unfair 
because charismaticism is not, the, the charismatic church is not necessarily a denomination. Pentecostalism is, but the charismatic church is more of a movement that influences a bunch of different denominations. You can be a charismatic Baptist, you can be a charismatic Lutheran, you even have charismatic Catholics, but that is going to be the largest. After Roman Catholicism in Protestantism, the majority of Protestants are going to identify, uh, compared to any other group, don't say majority, that makes it sound like 51%, but compared to any other group, are going to identify as charismatic. Number two is Anglican. The sun never sets on the British Empire. The Church of England is all over the place. It's in the U.S., it's in Australia, it's all over Europe. The Anglicanism is the uh, largest uh, Protestant denomination worldwide. And then number three are the Baptists. Okay, Number three are Baptists. Now, in the United States, the largest Protestant denomination... And even the largest seminary is uh, Southern Baptist. Okay, so in the United States, the largest Protestant denomination is Southern Baptist. Worldwide, though, it's Anglican if you don't include Pentecostals and Charismatics. You especially see this in the South, right? Like every other church is First Baptist something. In the South, you have a lot of Baptist and Methodist churches. You start to move to the Midwest, you get a lot of Lutheran churches. You start to go up the East Coast and you get Congregationalist and Presbyterian churches. uh, And then Catholics are kind of all throughout, so... In what countries is it most dangerous to be a Christian? There was a uh, professor that taught missions where I did my undergrad. And uh, in class, he would start taking off his shirt. And you thought to yourself, hmm, what did I sign up for? This is kind of weird. Let's just all keep our clothes on in class. That's a good general rule. And what he would do is he would show you where he had been tortured as a missionary for his faith. He would show you the burns and the scars and all that stuff from being beaten on his back. And he would ask, are you sure you want to do this? You sure you want to sign up for this? It's not an easy life. According to the Open Doors World Watch List, what is that? That is a group that tracks Christian martyrdoms and how difficult it is to be a Christian throughout the world. In order, the most dangerous countries to be a Christian are, number one, not surprisingly, North Korea. Okay, North Korea. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about North Korea, but it is crazy. Uh, You've probably never been there. I know a few people. I know two people in this room that have been there. They've gone there. They've run across the line in that little room and come back and didn't get murdered. Unless Dennis Rodman's in here somewhere. He's been there, right? But North Korea is uh, one of the most difficult places to be a Christian. North Korea has 50,000 of its own people in concentration camps. Okay, I don't know why. We just allow that to happen, by the way. Just as a little aside, if anywhere else people were doing like concentration camp stuff, we would go in and stop it, but for some reason we don't with North Korea. Number two, not surprisingly, Afghanistan. Very tough to be a Christian in Afghanistan. Number three, Somalia. A lot of these you would expect. Number four, Sudan, which is interesting because there's also a very strong Christian influence in Sudan. A few people in this room have been to Sudan, but it is a, uh, it is a, a very difficult place to be a Christian according, again, to the Open Doors World Watch list. Pakistan comes in at number five. You know, these are all the hot vacation spots, right? You guys, these are all, when you're like, where should we go on vacation? You're always like, let's go to Pakistan. Number six, Eritrea. Where's Eritrea? It is near uh, Ethiopia, up uh, in North Africa. Again, a lot of these have very strong uh, Muslim ties. Number seven is Libya. Number eight is Iraq. They used to have a guy there with a mustache. He was a really bad guy. You might remember him. Number nine, Yemen. And uh, number 10 is Iran. Now listen to this next statistic. 260 million Christians, that's one in eight, live in countries where they are persecuted for their faith. Okay? So when you get a chance to express your faith, When you get a chance to come to church, when you get a chance to think, who do I need to be praying for? Pray for these brothers and sisters around the world, one out of eight, that live in countries where they cannot worship Christ freely. 260 million Christians have it rougher today than you do. From the early church to 1900, there have been about 14 million documented Christian martyrs. Now listen to this next thing, this is crazy. But just in the 20th century alone, there were 26 million documented Christian martyrs. To say it another way, more Christians died as martyrs in the 1900s than the rest of church history combined. Now, we don't think about that. When you think of a Christian martyr, you think of Christians being served to lions in Rome, something like that. You don't realize that more Christians by far were martyred in the 1900s than in all of church history before that combined, okay? So the 1900s was very much the age of Christian martyrdom, and we just don't hear about it. Why? Because a lot of these happened in Marxist states. 
A lot of these happened in the USSR. A lot of these happened in China with guys like Mao. A lot of these happened in those kind of places. So they're not necessarily being published on uh, the People's Republic News or whatever it might be. About 100,000 Christians are killed each year because of issues related to their faith. That's because of dictators, communism, wars due to religion, the persecution of Islam, etc. Okay? So keep these people in mind. When you're like, who should I pray for today? You can pray for one of those 260 million. Okay? You can pray for one of them. Or you can pray for the families of the 100,000 that will die this year just because of their faith. Just because of their faith. Okay, it gets worse. Let's keep going. How is, evan- how is the evangelical church doing in America? So again, evangelicalism, and we have a lesson on this I would encourage you to listen to. It's not a denomination. It's more of a collection and ideology of the kind of Christians we are that want to put personal faith in Christ, that trust the Bible to be God's word, that believe that Jesus is God, etc., etc. How is the evangelical church doing in America? According to Ligonier's biannual survey of professing evangelicals in 2020, so this is a recent study, just last year, the following statistics show the state of theology in America. So how's, how's America doing? God's country, how's it doing? 30% of professing evangelicals said that Jesus was a great teacher but not God. This means that one-third of the Christians surveyed are not Christians at all, but rather Aryans. So surveying evangelicals, not just people that identify as Christian, not just people that identify as Protestant, people that identify as being evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people, one-third of them are heretics. One-third of them do not believe in Jesus at all. They just believe in some created being. 44% of Christians surveyed said that God did not choose whom he would save before he created the world. That one's not as surprising to me because most Christians tend to be Arminian today. uh, But that is still uh, shocking considering everything the Bible says about predestination. Listen to this next one. This next one's kind of weird. Of the same study, 10% said that learning about God was for pastors and scholars only, meaning one in 10 Christians thought that they didn't need to learn about God. One in 10. Don't think that they really need serious Bible study. It's just for pastors and scholars. One out of 10 Christians didn't think they needed to learn about God. Okay, Not that they needed to be scholars, not that they needed to get a PhD in patristic theology, but they just didn't think they needed to learn about God at all. 43% of those surveyed did not know or disagreed with the idea that the Holy Spirit gives someone new spiritual life before they can believe the gospel, which is a problem because it denies original sin. It denies how broken we are and our depravity. 17% of evangelicals said that science disproves the Bible. Think about that. There's a difference between saying, I don't know how this scientific thing fits with the Bible, or I believe the Bible and I don't believe the scientific thing, but 17% of Christians just said, yeah, science totally disproves the Bible. 17%. So are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe the Bible? Yes. Do you think science disproves the Bible? Of course it does. Okay, I want to back up with the previous two questions, right? Listen to this one. 46% of evangelicals, again, these just aren't general Christians. They're those that identify as evangelical, said that people are good by nature, an actual heresy known as Pelagianism. So one-third of everybody in America that professes to be an evangelical is an Arian, and almost half are Pelagian. Almost half are Pelagian. Boo, yes, someone booed. You've been indoctrinated well. When we say Arius or Pelagius or one of these guys here, you know, you, you boo. That's what we do. We say Nickelback and everybody boos, whatever. Okay. 16% disagreed with or did not know how to answer when the statement, God saves by faith in Christ and not by one's works, was given. Again, Pelagianism. So they would say, do you believe that, that God saves you by faith, not by your works? And evangelicals, 16% didn't know how to answer that question. of Christians thought that God might save a sincere uh, Jew or Muslim even if they didn't know Jesus, okay? So four out of ten would say, yeah, as long as you're a Muslim or a Jew that follows the God that you know, God will save you. 42%, that's a high percentage. Listen to this one. 22% of Bible-believing Christians said that gender identity was a matter of personal choice. Christians, okay? Christians that believe that God made them, quote, male and female would say that, uh, no, actually, gender identity is a matter of personal choice. According to Pew Research, if you know Pew Research, it's a statistics gathering, information gathering group, and they do a lot of things related to faith. Listen to this. About half of professing Christians believe that sex before marriage is sometimes or always acceptable. So what the Bible calls, I don't know, sexual immorality, 50% of Christian surveyed said that, uh, no, you you can sleep around before marriage. 
Only 64% of Americans identify as being any type of Christian, and 26% of Americans explicitly identify as atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. Think about that. One out of every four Americans you meet is not just not a Christian. They don't believe in any God at all. The next time you're at a big football stadium or you're at a big baseball stadium or whatever it is, just imagine one-fourth of that stadium is atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. Okay? Again, that is a fast... Everybody I know that was a Christian and deconverted, which means they were never really a Christian because Calvinism's true, and deconverted, they always become atheistic or agnostic. They don't become like Hindu. They don't become Buddhist or something like that. That is a hugely um, popular worldview. Okay? According to a recent Gallup poll, in 1937, 73% of U.S. adults belonged to some type of church. In 2020, the number is down to only 4%. I'm sorry, 4%, 47%. Only about 36% of U.S. millennials belong to any type of traditional church, and adults who do not identify with any religion has grown by 21% over the past two decades. Now, I'll give you one more really discouraging set of statistics here. And then we'll get into where I think the church is headed and what are some possible solutions. What is our role as the church seems to not be in a great place today? Let's ask this question, though. How are evangelical pastors doing? And by the way, if you don't like these statistics I'm about to give you or you don't think this is true, just Google pastor burnout statistics. Whatever ones you find will not be encouraging. But let me give you what the numbers are. Maybe you don't know necessarily the darker side of ministry. 75% of pastors report being stressed or, quote, extremely stressed. 90% work between 55 and 75 hours a week. 70% say they are grossly underpaid. 40% say that they have a major conflict with someone in their church at least once a month, a major conflict. 80% of pastors do not make it more than 10 years in ministry before resigning. I barely beat that statistic by like, barely, like six months. Barely. Listen to this. The average seminary trained pastor, the average, is only in ministry for five years or less. So you get your bachelor's degree, that takes four years full-time. Then you get an MDiv or something, and that takes three years of graduate work full-time. Then you start ministry. The average seminary trained pastor is out of ministry in five years or less. Okay, 80% don't make it more than 10 years. 70% of pastors struggle with constant depression. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they say they would leave ministry if they could, but they are not confident that they could find another job. 80% believe that ministry has negatively impacted their family, and 33% said it was a, quote, downright hazard. 77% have bad marriages. 38% are divorced or divorcing. 50% of pastors admit to using pornography, and 37% admit to having inappropriate sexual behavior with someone at their church. That's how many admit it. 65% feel like their family lives in a glass house. 72% of pastors only study the Bible to prepare for a sermon. Being a pastor is in the top three professions with the highest suicide rates. It's right up there with dentists and hedge fund managers. No offense to the dentists in the room, right? No offense. It is, it, in fact, everybody that I know, of all the people that I know or know of that have committed suicide, the majority of them are pastors. Now, that's going to be a skewed statistic because I happen to know a lot of pastors, but that number should be zero, and it's not, okay? One out of four pastors admit to having some type of mental illness. Half of those have actually been formally diagnosed with one. So, pray for your pastors. Encourage your pastors. Pray for your church, okay? Now, A lot of these I identify with. Not all of them. I've not looked at porn or cheated on my wife or, uh, you know, I think the the elders paid me a fair wage, etc. But some of the stress and the anxiety and carrying people's burdens all the time, it's difficult. So, that's not meant to discourage you. It's actually meant to let you kind of see things from the other side so you can encourage your pastor, so you can give them grace. We're just sinners and we fail just like you do, okay? We're just, we have a different calling, a different vocation, but we're broken nevertheless. Now, What are some theological trends that you will continue to see develop in the next generation of Christianity? Now, let me say something before I get into these. I'm going to give on some of these points a lot of nuance. One of the things I wish I had done better in my ministry is to give more nuance. So I want to give more nuance on some of these uh, things, and I'm going to let you know where I think the church is headed. I could be wrong, but I want to give you some of these thoughts of where the church is headed today. But again, it could do better in the future. Our hopes in Christ, it's not in your, you know, your neighbor John or whoever that, that may or may not do well. Uh, okay, 
That wasn't directed at anybody named John, by the way. I was just trying to pick a random name. The more people I know here, the more names I run out of. You know, I used to say Todd, and then we got some Todds. And I used to say Larry, and we've got... So anyway, okay. First of all, a few things. You will see increasing Christian persecution in nations that were formerly considered to be bastions of Christianity. And this will happen under the guise of other things. Here's what you need to understand. Throughout church history, when Christians are persecuted, sometimes it's directly related to their faith. Like with the Muslim conquest in the Middle Ages, they would say, we're killing you because you're a Christian. But a lot of times, persecution comes under the guise of other things. Rome, when Christians were killed under Rome, it wasn't because they were Christians. They were fine with you worshiping Jesus as long as you would also worship the emperor. They, they, they persecuted Christians because they caused social unrest. They didn't agree with the norms of the society around them. During the French Revolution, if you think back to that, you had Robespierre's uh, committee, which was called the Committee on Public Safety, and they killed a bunch of Christians because it was not safe. Their ideas were dangerous. It didn't help support the revolution. And so a lot of times persecution is going to come under the guise of other things. They're going to say, we're not persecuting you because of your faith. It's because you're homophobic or you're transphobic, or you don't agree with this ideology. You're, you're a nuisance. You, you don't agree with society. So remember, the devil is smart. He parades as an angel of light. The government's not going to come out and say, we're persecuting you because you're a Christian. It's going to come under the guise of other things. Okay. Number two, more and more churches will have female pastors. So I don't know if you know this or not, but feminism is not going away. Okay, that is going to continue to thrive. That's going to be very normal. Uh, one of the jokes that I often did when I told people about Parkway, I said, man, you should come here. Uh, you should come to Parkway. You should come here. Our, our pastor, she is awesome. And I would just do that just to see how they would respond as a joke. Uh, but that's no longer becoming a joke in, uh, in many churches, despite all of church history, basically, with a few exceptions being against that. Number three, homosexuality and transgenderism will continue to make inroads in the evangelical church. So again, that's going to be something that just keep it on your radar. That's not going anywhere more and more churches are saying, not what we should say, which is, the church, Christians should say, we love gay people. We love people who identify as being transgender. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus. They are not the problem. They are the mission field. Amen? Amen. The ideology, though, and the actions are sinful, and so we have to say both. We have to say, I love you. I want you to meet Jesus. He'll provide the love you're actually looking for, but these things that you believe in, these things you're doing are sinful, but there's forgiveness for you if you'll repent. There, there, there's got to be both. There's got to be a love for people and a hatred of sin at the same time. Number four, Christianity will continue to be further divided along political lines. Now, this wasn't the case as much 60 years ago. A lot of Christians were much more united on what we thought on areas of abortion or homosexuality or uh, all kinds of things. But you're going to see the church continue to fight one another, especially on political lines. There will not be as much unity among Christians on issues such as abortion, homosexuality, freedom of speech, etc., as there was in the past. You will see less and less pastors having a formal theological education. Education will shift to unaccredited institutions or to local training in churches. So the way that pastors used to be trained was in the church, obviously in the very early uh, church in church history. Then you got the rise of the cathedral schools where you would study under some sort of uh, priest or pastor. Then you got the rise of the universities in Europe. And then uh, out of those sprung seminaries, which are institutions of graduate learning for the study of theology. Like you might go to law school or medical school, you go to theology school. As those institutions no longer tolerate Christianity. By the way, most seminaries in the U.S., the vast majority, most seminaries and divinity schools don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's the majority. Okay. As those institutions continue to drift, the church is going to have to step up to train pastors either through unaccredited institutions or through the local church. That's one of the reasons we do theological equipping class uh, here at uh, Parkway. May Jesus deliver you from that demon, yes? <clears throat> Number six, Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement will continue to influence the global view of Christianity. So again, that is going to be a hugely influential movement everywhere. U.S., Africa, South America, uh, even in Europe. It's very, very popular. Number seven. Churches, in an attempt to be relevant, will downplay the historic moral positions and beliefs of the church considered to be intolerant. Okay, that's something that we've, uh, we've already seen that will probably keep happening. Roman Catholicism will continue to be more inclusive and water down traditional beliefs. Now, let me tell you what Roman Catholicism does as time goes on. We as Protestants can say if some pope got something wrong or some council got something wrong, we can say that's not biblical and we can just run with the Bible. Thank you. Thank you, Martin Luther. Okay? In Roman Catholicism, though, they can't do that because they're tied to tradition. So what do they do if they disagree with the official position 
of something in the past. They can't just get rid of it because they believe in tradition. What they do is they reinterpret it. I'll give you a great example of this. There's a Catholic theologian who's very popular. His name's Karl Rahner. And the Catholic Church would say there's no salvation outside of Christ. And so Rahner is not allowed to say that there is. He'll say, no, there's no salvation outside of Christ, but you don't have to consciously believe in Christ. You don't have to consciously know Christ. The salvation still happens in Christ. He's still the one doing the saving, but you don't have to actually know who he is for him to save you. So you see what he's doing. He's changing it where other faiths and other people can get saved, but he doesn't want to go against what the church has traditionally taught, so there is a reinterpretation of that. You will see the internet play a much larger role in church life. Again, this is not necessarily good or bad, right? The internet is a blessing and a curse. We, we were able to, because of the internet, to stream our sermons when we broke for COVID. We were able to stream them now. We're able to provide theological equipping resources that churches all over the U.S. are using. It's super helpful. But also, people can sometimes use it as a replacement for church. There are entire churches where people only attend online, and I kid you not, you can take communion or be baptized by moving your avatar on the screen. Okay? So you take your little picture of yourself, and you move it to the little tub of water. Chick-chick, you're online baptized. So much easier. You don't have to change clothes or anything, okay? Never have to get the water, you never have to get the water warm. And so uh, you will see the internet continue to play a huge role in church life. Uh, and sometimes people neglect the gathering because of that. You will see Christians abandon their faith based on advances in science and because the Bible pushes against a sexual immorality that is embraced by the culture. Number 11, missions will be done increasingly online rather than in person. Now again, this is not necessarily a bad thing. How did you have to do missions in the 1800s? You got on a boat. What? That's a death trap. For three months to go to some foreign country and you show up, you know, from as Whitey McWhitesons and you're in like, uh, you know, India or somewhere and you got to learn the language and you got to get to know the people. And if you don't like Indian food, tough. William Carey, tough. You better learn to eat that Indian food. And then you just stay there your whole life. Very difficult. Now we can train an entire room of pastors in Africa online. It's amazing. Now, that doesn't replace missions. There's still a need to go. There's still a need to send them sometimes here so they can get training. But it is a blessing there that you can give so many good resources to churches. Uh, the, the staff uh, recently worked with a guy who does missions work in Haiti, and we were able to record videos explaining the gospel for pastor training in Haiti. And they had one of their pastors who speaks Creole, which I thought was a seasoning. I didn't even know that was a language. He speaks Creole, and he's able to translate it to the people. It's amazing. Okay? It's amazing. Number 12. The next generation will not know how to handle suffering or mortality well. Okay, we saw this. Now, again, I want to give some nuance. I'm going to say something about COVID. Don't get mad. I'm going to give some nuance. COVID is real. It can hospitalize or kill you. It's unlikely, but it can happen. Talk to your doctor about what you should do because your doctor knows more than you or your blogs or your podcast. Okay, that's one side. Five million people have died worldwide from COVID. The Spanish flu, 100 years ago, killed 50 to 100 million. Do you know how long churches stayed closed during the Spanish flu? About three weeks. And the whole world's been shut down for two years. What's changed? What's changed? The way we approach life has changed. The attempt to avoid death has changed. The way we see the purpose of life has changed. Now, some of that's because we can mitigate, uh, you know, uh, death, which is good. Online stuff is good. I love that food can be brought to my door. We have better medicine. Totally agree. So I want to give some nuance there. But what, what was so interesting to me during this whole thing that we're going through is looking back at church history, thinking to myself, okay, Zach, I don't want to just follow right or left. I want to think about what have, how have Christians traditionally responded to pandemics? And so it's interesting to look back and see what Christians did in the past versus how the world responds today. That's a worldview shift, okay? That's a worldview shift. Number 13. I'm going to give some nuance uh, in just a second on number 14. 13, because traditional family values and things such as physical discipline are illegal in several countries, the next generation will be more anxious, more rebellious, and more entitled than previous generations. Uh, disciplining your kids physically has been something the world has always done. Every culture, liberal, conservative, Protestant, Catholic, that's something the whole world has always done. But we are in an age now where that we're increasingly moving away towards that, and we'll see the results of that in the future. Now, in number 14, I want to give a lot of nuance again here. Let me read this and then I'll, I'll clarify because I don't want this to sound like you're just free to be mean to people. Postmodernism 
will cause churches to continue focusing on tone, feelings, niceness, and avoiding offense instead of its reformation role of bold proclamation of difficult truths. Okay? Now let me clarify what I do and don't mean there. Jared said something in his sermon last week that I thought was such a helpful nuance. It was really, really good. What he said is this. He said, if you look at Jesus or the prophets, there are times when they're super kind in their words. Think about Jesus. He plays with kids. He's kind to the whore that cries at his feet. He weeps when Lazarus dies. You see the sensitive side of Jesus. But he also can be very aggressive. He can also be very mean, the way that he talks to the Pharisees or the way that he refutes false doctrine or when he flips the table when people are not treating God as being holy. You see both. But here's the the nuance that Jared said, which I thought was really good. Whether you're being aggressive or you're being kind, the Christian must have a heart of love. It can't come from a heart of hate. It must come from a heart of love. So there's a time to be nice There's a time to be aggressive. But if when you're being aggressive, you're doing so because you hate your enemy, that's not Christian. If you're being aggressive because you love people, though. So you'll see Jesus make fun of the Pharisees for being stupid. And he does that because he loves the people who are listening to him. He's protecting them from their false doctrine. It has to come from a heart of love. Okay? So you have content and you have tone. Both are important. But content is always going to be more important. If you are somebody who's always mean and angry and aggressive, you're not being like Jesus. Amen? Amen. But if you're somebody who is never aggressive, you're also not being like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Both, again, tone and content are important. The Christian is to speak true things, and the Bible would say that our speech should be gracious, seasoned with salt. So if that's not you, that's something that you need to consider. That's something I personally can do a better job in. Okay? But you need to keep in mind that when somebody, let me say it this way, you can be right and arrogant, or you can be right and humble. But if you're wrong, you're never humble. Being wrong is inherently arrogant. Okay? We've said this before, that truth can be said in an unloving way, but a falsehood is always unloving. Let me ask you this way. Does God see a kind Muslim as proud or humble? He sees them as proud. Because they're committing this pride and this this proud sinful action of not submitting their worldview and their ideology to God. Okay? So you have content. Jesus' content is always true. He never says anything false. But his tone will change depending on his audience, depending on what he's doing. And so churches need to keep this idea in mind. We don't need to be mean just to be mean. But we also not need, we don't need to be scared that guys like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Augustine and Aquinas have some very hard things to say, even making fun of pagans, even making fun of other Christians. Okay, We need to keep our Reformation heritage uh, in view as well. Number 15, the church will increasingly embrace the worldview of culture in an attempt to look attractive to the culture. Number 16, Socialism will increasingly threaten the religious freedom of Christians. Remember, all the Christian martyrs, the majority of them came from states that eventually became full-blown Marxist. Then number 17, the church will become more refined and stronger. There will be less of a Christian influence, but those who identify as Christians will have counted the cost. Um, Sometimes I meet someone who's a Christian, and they come from a a country that is where there's much less Christianity than America, and I ask them what it's like, and they say that there are things about it they like and things about it they hate. What they uh, hate about it is how pagan everything is. That's why they moved to Texas or whatever it is. But what they love about it is those that are Christians are really Christians. In the South, Christianity is just kind of something you do on Sunday, right? You do whatever you want to, party on Saturday night. Then you go to church. Then you go to babes and you get some chicken. And then you take a nap and after you watch the Cowboys or whatever. That's just, that's just what you do in the South. Whereas in other countries, you have to count the cost. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be ostracized. Now, persecution is never good. I've heard Christians say, well, if we're persecuted, the church becomes refined. Okay, that's like saying if you get cancer and survive, you'll be stronger. That doesn't mean cancer's good. doesn't mean persecution's good, but it does mean that God will refine his church. Now, what's the solution to these things, these drifts that we're seeing? Number one, church history, a recovery of orthodox theology and how we got here. I have a rule that I'd like you to apply to your lives, and it's this. Don't follow any doctrine that's not at least 400 years old. Okay? If you want to ask, what should we think about women pastors? What should we think about homosexuality? What should we think about tone when we preach? What should we think about whatever it is? What should we think about this political issue? Ask yourself, what have 2,000 years of Christians thought about this before today? And church history helps as a corrective block to a lot of these things. Number two, a focus on the central theme of the Bible, the person and saving work of Christ. 
So many Christians find a soapbox that's something other than Jesus. Let Jesus be your soapbox. Let him be your, 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 uh, the thing that you're so passionate about. Let him be the thing that you're just known for. Let, the, let him be the focus of your theology. Your theology should be Christocentric. Number three, a focus on the larger storyline of Scripture, kingdom, which affects all of life, not just salvation. The reason, so, so when we just read how many evangelicals believe crazy things, do you know, where, you know how that happens? They grow up in churches where the gospel becomes how you can get your get out of hell free card, and that's it. The gospel in most churches, and you've probably heard this growing up, is this. Pray this prayer, walk this aisle, invite Jesus into your heart, and you can go to heaven when you die. And if that's all you get, you don't know how to have a godly marriage. You don't know how to raise your kids. You don't know how to have a godly business. You don't know what to think about politics. You don't know what to think about the end times. You don't know what to think about morality. You know nothing else. The Great Commission is not to go, therefore, and make half-baked converts. The Great Commission is to make full-blown disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I've commanded, which is the Bible. That teaching element is what takes the longest. Baptism takes a few seconds. Going takes a plane ride. The teaching them to observe takes a lifetime. Number four, evangelism done through personal relationships instead of gimmicky techniques. Okay? Throw out your evangelism explosion. Throw out your four spiritual laws. Throw out this idea that I can just share the gospel on an elevator ride with somebody. But Zach, people have gotten saved that way. Sure, God sometimes speaks through a donkey. It happens, okay? That doesn't mean it's best. Doesn't mean it's best. The best way to do evangelism is to actually love people. Stop treating people like projects that you can just get saved so that you can get the Holy Spirit off your back. And instead, love people, be their friends, And if you will do that, you will get a chance to eventually share the gospel, and it won't be weird. Everybody that I've actually led to Christ has happened through personal relationship. The people that I've just run up to on the street and asked them, you know, hey, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? And they're like, do you have COVID? What are you saying that? Get away from me, right? That's never worked. That's That's not how people interact anymore, okay? When somebody knocks on my door, I don't answer it. I don't want to know who it is. Drop off my Amazon package. Throw, do what the Amazon does. Throw it against the door, take a blurry screenshot, and run back to your truck. That's all I want. Okay? That's all I want. Number five. Listen to this. This is what our people... Everyone's stressed. Everybody's anxious. This is the solution. Listen to this. The message that Jesus will provide more lasting joy than the pleasures of this world, and that he is the only one who can provide hope in a rapidly changing world. Number six, a reminder that being a Christian means that the world should hate you. You will not be able to look attractive to a world that hates God. Let me give some nuance again around this. People should hate you because of your doctrine. They should hate you because of your belief and your action. If they hate you because you're a jerk, it's because you're a jerk. Don't put that on Jesus. Okay, don't put that on Jesus. People should hate you because of your views, not because you're just a really mean person. Some Christians think, I'm being persecuted. People are mad at me because of my views of Christ. And I think, no, I have views of Christ, and I'm mad at you, right? So uh, make sure that you're being hated for your faith and not because of your terrible personality. Okay, number seven. Let me give some nuance around this as well. A political push for more religious freedom and freedom of speech. Let me clarify again, because I think a lot of evangelicals don't have enough nuance on this. If you think of major evangelical pastors and leaders, okay, major evangelical pastors and leaders, the blue check marks on Twitter, they're both sometimes on opposite ends of the spectrum, and nobody's giving enough nuance. Some of them act like our hope is not in Christ, but our hope is in the Republican Party, or our hope is in our Lord and Savior Donald Trump, something like that. They put all their hope in what's going on in politics, and they just seem, they don't see lost people as the mission. They see lost people as this hurdle that is in their way. That's not where you want to be. On the other end of the spectrum, though, there are people that are almost Gnostic. They almost act like we shouldn't care what's going on in society. We shouldn't get sad when more babies are aborted and evil men are in power and people's lives are being ruined. Our hope is just in Christ, and so let's not worry about any of this stuff here. Neither of those is the biblical position. The biblical position takes nuance, and here's the biblical position. I think how we should respond with what's going on in our world is the same way that the psalmists respond, or the psalmists, mainly David, but there are others, how they respond. They will do both. They will say, on the one hand, they weep when evil men are in power, when nations are destroyed, when bad things are happening. But how do they end their psalm? But my hope is in God. But my hope is in God. You have to have both. You should be upset when crazy things are happening because that's evil. Evil should bother you. Faith without what is dead. 
Faith without works is dead. God hasn't just asked you to pray. He's also asked you to vote better. He's also asked you to disciple better. He's also asked you to push back evil in the world. But you don't want to swing that so far where you put all your hope in what's going on here because Christ is coming. The ultimate president is going to be Jesus, right? The king of kings, the king of the kings of the earth, as the Bible will call him. And so you have to have both. There's a sense in which you can be sad when things are bad, but you also have to have that joyful hope. How can the apostle Paul say things like he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing? How can Jesus be a man of sorrows? And the Bible also say things like for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You've got to have both. Number eight, pastors must be required to obtain at least a moderate level of education before assuming pastoral office so they know how to teach the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Number nine, a return to pre-modern and modern views of truth and an explicit rejection of postmodernism. I would encourage you to listen to Jeff's postmodernism lecture from, uh, a lecture from last week. It was really, really helpful in understanding where some of these weird things come from in the church specifically. Number 10, male leadership and a focus on the importance of the nuclear family. That has always been the biblical pattern back in Judaism, in uh, Christianity, throughout all 2,000 years of church history. If you want your kids to thrive, you want your church to thrive, you want to influence your society, you need strong male leadership. By strong, I don't mean you being a jerk. I don't mean by you being macho. I mean you being godly. Strong male leadership and uh, the nuclear family. Number 11, we need to elevate the importance of content, what's said over how it's said. Again, more nuance. This, is not, this doesn't give you freedom to be a jerk. You need to control your language. You should be, as we've said here at Parkway, a velvet-covered hammer. You hit with the truth, but with velvet on there. Some of y'all rip the velvet off and you, like, glue tacks on it. Okay? The hammer is the hammer. It will do the hammering. It's the hard part. Okay? We're to be a velvet-covered hammer. But we need to keep in mind, with a culture that doesn't say this, if somebody tells you something that's true and they curse at you and they're super offensive, guess what? It's still true. You don't get to shake it off because you don't like who said it or what was said. Okay? Number 12, Christians being more vocal in the workplace, in politics, on social media, and Christians creating alternative venues to express ideas that are not owned, or that are, uh, not owned by non-Christian organizations. Let me give some more nuance. Two ends of the spectrum where you don't want to be. One is the Amish, right, where you're just completely detached from society. But on the other hand, you don't want to completely give in to society. What we need to do is we need to be salt and light in a broken society, but we need to be smart. I've got a buddy who's a First Amendment attorney. He goes all over the nation defending Christians, you know, for religious suits, for expressing their freedom of religion. And he said that he keeps seeing a lot of deplatforming. Credit card companies that won't process for churches because they're bigoted, and so the church goes under because the people have no way to pay. Or websites that will take down a church's website because it's homophobic just because it holds traditional views. Some of you are really good at being innocent as doves, and I need you to be a little bit better at being as shrewd as serpents. Okay? Be in the culture, but not of it. But also be smart. Have backup plans. Have ways to still get what you need when things get crazy because persecution is coming and to some extent has already begun. Educating ourselves on what's going on in society so we can be at the forefront of social, philosophical, and technological issues. Here's how thought changes historically. It starts in the university. That's where all the big thinkers are. And they're the ones training all the people, the businessmen, the lawyers, the pastors. It starts in the university. Culture is about 50 years behind. And then the church is about 10 years behind that. So all the weird stuff we're seeing with postmodernism really blew up in the 60s in the university. 50 years later, culture started happening. And now we, 10 years after that, and the church are like, what is critical theory? What's happening? And we're playing catch up instead of being on the forefront of things. 14. Not tolerating false teaching and false teachers, but being quick to remove those who don't teach what the church has historically held. We should be very intolerant of bad teaching. 15, actually loving people, not the way culture defines love, and having a hope that doesn't shift when culture does. And then 16, with globalization, Christianity will have to better adapt to non-Western cultures. Okay, You can't just think of how do I evangelize, how do I disciple an American, because we have just saw America's going like this, when it comes to Christianity, but Africa, Asia, South America are going like that. So you have to ask, how do I disciple somebody from an African culture? How do I disciple somebody from a South American culture, etc.? Well, I want to end by quickly going over some things that we've learned in church history, and then we'll have a few questions for Q&A. What have we learned through our study of church history after this year? I'm going to go through these quick so we have time for some questions. First, church history reminds us that we are part of a larger family of faith. What we looked at basically is our spiritual family tree. 
You know, we've all got crazy uncles, but we had to say, who's old crazy uncle Calvin, right? Who's great, great, great granddad Augustine, whatever it is. Number two, church history helps us rightly interpret the Bible. How do you know that you're interpreting the Bible rightly? You can't see your blind spots. You can't see your presuppositions, but you can look at what millions of Christians before you who are smarter than you that speak more languages than you have thought about theology. Three, church history gives us bumpers to protect us from falling into theological error, right? So what church history does is it lets us know what orthodoxy is, and then we're free to play in the lane. When I go bowling, if I have bumpers, because I bowl like a child apparently in this analogy, the ball can go anywhere in the lane, but the bumpers protect me from falling into heresy. Number four, church history helps us guard against reading our culture onto the biblical text. Number five, church history helps us see where we might be defending our traditions instead of scripture. Number six, church history helps us know how to address situations today. Zach, what do you think of multi-site campuses? This is something the church is having to come up with today because we have the internet. No one's ever thought about this before. That's not true. The reformers talked about a pastor being over several different congregations. They called them pluralities, and they were against them. The church has already actually dealt with this issue. They said that though they're good speakers, they wouldn't actually be able to shepherd the people with that. So that's something helpful today that we can take from church history. Number seven, church history brings humility. Number eight, church history helps us minister to others when we know their theological traditions, their background. Number nine, church history reminds us that those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. And then my favorite part about church history, church history is a reminder of God's grace. Church history is so crazy, guys. It's so unchristian. That's why I like studying it. It's so weird. And it reminds you, if Jesus' bride can be this crazy and this adulterous, and he still love her, how much hope do we have? We've got a lot of hope. We've got a lot. I'm a bad guy. I'm not Pope Innocent III, right? It gives us a lot of hope. So let me pray. And by the way, this picture, by the way, is a worship setting from the early church, medieval church, Reformation church, and the church today, the four major eras of church history. Let me pray, and then we will uh, do a little Q&A with, uh, with uh, old Jer Bear. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, we thank you that you have not forsaken your bride, though we've forsaken you a lot not only in our personal lives, but just as corporate bodies of Christians throughout church history, yet you love us. We thank you for this series. We pray that uh, you would remind us of these things. We pray that we might not look to the future for truth, but rather we'd look to the past. And so we love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.